Good morning. I'm Allison Lee. I'm from the English department here at CLU. Uh, and there will be an English literary reference. Keep an eye out for it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 uh, is the passage that has shaped the spring theme for uh, the chapel talks this uh, year. And in that chapter, faith is defined as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. The brief chapter is basically a list of figures from the Bible who by faith went out and did this, that, and the other, uh, from subduing kingdoms like Samson or David to being imprisoned, stoned, sawn in two, slain by the sword, and who wandered around destitute in sheepskins, and many who died without receiving the promise. Uh, I'm not sure why Pastor Scott asked me to speak to you on this topic. Uh, I'm pretty assured and convicted about some things, uh, but faith is not my strong suit. I have subdued no kingdoms, and while I hope never to be sawn in two, uh, that's actually not a bad metaphor for what my experience uh, and life in the church has felt like. My faith story is not a feel-good heart warmer, and it's not my favorite thing to talk about. But Scott uh, acted like he knows what he's doing. So, so I will share it with you, and you must make of it what you will. Um, here's the first important point. Being a Lutheran pastor has been my family's profession for generations. My great-grandpa was a professor of Old Testament at Luther Seminary in Minnesota in the early 1900s. In the 1950s, my grandpa Morris helped grow a church in Madison, Wisconsin into the largest Lutheran congregation in the country at that time. Two of his sons became pastors and they both married pastors. Seriously, it's a difficult rut to climb out of once you've fallen in. Um, among us cousins, it was generally understood that I would be uh, our generation's representative in the family work. I was always at church. I loved its music and its seasons. I love history and languages. I loved learning about the cultural context of the Bible, what, they, what the stories would have meant to their original audiences and what they could mean to us now. And I simply loved my grandfather. He was good-natured, smart, charismatic, and generous and complicated. He had an enormous impact on everyone whose lives he touched. One of my most precious memories took place during the year of frailty and quietude between his heart attack and his eventual death. He was 89 and I was 25. I would go sit with him in my grandparents' condominium. Sometimes we would talk and he'd tell me stories about parishioners and uh, people he knew in the church. Uh, and sometimes we would just sit and breathe together. One evening in particular, he reached over in the quiet and patted my knee and softly said, you were always one of my favorites. <laughs> I'm not sure grandparents are supposed to admit that <laughs> to any particular grandchildren. Uh, but what my grandpa took seriously, I took seriously, and he had devoted his entire life work to this church. 
So far you're thinking, really, if your faith falters, that's obviously your own problem, and please get to the sod in half bits before I sicken of all this privileged lovey-dovey kumbaya stuff. (laughs) So here's the second important point. I can't tell you anything about my faith story with also telling you I'm gay. It wasn't a poor choice of mine. I came out of the womb that way. I was knit in my mother's womb. I was fearfully and wonderfully made. Everyone who ever knew me, even when I was little, will tell you that this is the truth. When I was in college pursuing a classics major with the seminary still in mind, I learned that the policies of the ELCA at that time banned me from becoming a pastor unless I were to sign secret papers agreeing to live out my days without a partner. I just don't believe that God demands that some of us be lonely. I grew up believing wholeheartedly in family and in committed, loving partnerships. I watched such partnerships in action in the remarkable marriages of my grandparents and my own parents. Besides, wasn't the Lutheran Church born out of Martin Luther's multiple critiques of Catholicism, including its requirement that priests be celibate? Luther argued that, as Paul had written, celibacy was a personal calling and could not be legislated for others. His own marriage to Katharina von Boren embodied this stance. So by age 20, I was hurt and angry at being rejected by my church that had welcomed all my other relatives so warmly. My own grandpa told me firmly and repeatedly that church policy was not right on this issue and that it would change one day. But he also grieved with me that in the meantime, this was my life going by and I had to make choices. It didn't seem right to have to fight every single day to be valued by the very institution that had taught me of my intrinsic value in the eyes of God. I was baptized into a Lutheran church that professes a priesthood of all believers. How hard is that? All either means all, or the church is a liar. I figured I could either remain in the church where I felt daily tormented and devalued by its members, its leadership, and policies, Or else I could, in a sense, saw myself in two, pretending to be something I'm not, in order to be welcomed. But that wouldn't be a genuine welcome anyway, would it? So I left. I wandered. I wore sheepskins. No, I didn't. I I didn't wear (laughs) sheepskins. Usually jeans or Banana Republic. But in a sense, I have been wandering in a spiritual desert ever since, and I have never rejoined a church, Lutheran or otherwise. Recently, some earnest Lutherans have touted the fact that the ELCA overturned its policy banning gay clergy just in 2009 and have tried to welcome me back into the fold, uh, happily and pleased. But here's my point. 40 years of being told that I am not welcome in my faith family has taken a serious toll on my faith. Not necessarily my faith in God, but certainly in God's people. And as I will argue, 
it's very difficult to separate the two most of the time. Furthermore, um, Lutherans are only about 5% of the population in this country, and the actions and beliefs of the other 95% of the population are not inconsequential. Perhaps you've heard of the Westboro Baptist Church that pickets funerals carrying signs that say God hates gays and worse. Perhaps you've heard of Lawrence King, the eighth grader from Oxnard who was shot and killed just up the street from us almost exactly three years ago today by a 14-year-old junior high classmate a day after they had argued about his sexual orientation. Perhaps you're old enough to remember Jerry Falwell say that AIDS is the wrath of a just God against homosexuals. Perhaps you noticed that a New York candidate for governor this past fall went on record saying of being gay, that's not how God created us. Perhaps you've thought such things yourself. Perhaps you have heard that the government of Uganda in Africa is considering right now legislation that would punish homosexual acts with death. And the act of touching one another with homosexual intent with life in prison. Perhaps you've heard that Christians here in the US have been helping to promote Uganda's legislation with a massive outpouring of money and resources. Can you imagine life in prison for a touch? Science tells us that human babies die without touch. It is terrifying enough that people are killed regularly every day for being gay. It's even more terrifying to me that today in this country, Christian identified people with social, political, and economic power are actively arguing that we should be killed for being gay. You might think at this point, whoa, you're getting sort of political and that's uncomfortable. But my faith doesn't live someplace separate from this real world and its real actions and real people and real policies and real debates. I chose two readings for today that sometimes have helped bolster my faith in the face of all these contemporary voices that would try to convince me that God doesn't love me, that I deserve death rather than the life God gave me. The psalmist praises God saying, you created my inmost being, you knit me in my mother's womb, you know me, you know me. This is a powerful image expressing great intimacy, love, and safety. Whatever you might think you know about me, God knows me. I try to drown everything else out and trust this relationship, this bond that was made before anyone else came along to try to get me to doubt it. I also long for and every day try to work for a human society that reflects Christ's refusal to distinguish among us on the basis of things we seem all too eager to set up as wedges between us, our religious affiliations, our geography and national borders, our economic status, or even our biology. In Christ, says the gospel, none of these details matter. But a vision of this society, this vision 
of a united life in Christ is difficult to hope for when we treat one another so badly over these very details every single day. There's a line by the 19th century poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning that I would like to share with you as I close. You knew I had to bring up the Victorians eventually. I, that's part of my contract. <laughs> you might recognize Elizabeth Barrett Browning by one of her most often quoted lines. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the height and breadth and depth my soul can reach. One of the most beautiful sonnets about an embodied uh, married love in the English language. But in another poem called The Cry of the Children, which is uh, a scathing critique of child labor practices in an increasingly industrializing Britain, Barrett Browning writes, God's possible is taught by his world's loving. The context here is that children working and being harmed and dying in the factories uh, have given up on God and they plead for death because in death there is no work or pain. And they say to the adults around them, God is silent as a stone. And we hear that our masters are made in his image and they do not help us when we cry. So why should we think that God would help us when we cry? God's possible is taught by his world's loving. Bishop Desmond Tutu has said, there is no greater blasphemy than to cause another human being to doubt God's love. The current ELCA promotional campaign also, interestingly, right now is this, simply God's work, our hands. As you go out today, or this week, this lifetime, you might ask yourself, as I try to do, am I teaching God's possible to all those I encounter? Are my words and the works of my hands affirming or denying God's love for every single one of us? You might keep a special eye out for anyone wandering around in sheepskins. <laughs> Their faith just might be faltering. They might need you.